Good morning, family. My name is Robbie, and I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here at Faith. And man, I am just feeling a little shaken this morning, uh, like in a, in a good way, just hearing us sing and watching us worship and just wondering, like, man, do we, do we realize what we're doing here? Like we are not here just talking about opinions and principles and traditions and ideas. Like we are here gathered in the name of and for the sake of the living God of the universe who's like literally transforming lives from the inside out. This is, this is incredible. Like this thing that we do every Sunday is incredible. And it is mind-boggling to me how easy it is for my own heart and mind and for all of us like corporately to just kind of slip into this like routine of like, well, that's what you do on Sunday and we're checking our watches. Like, when can we get to what we really want to do? And I'm like just, just blown away watching this family come and around these tables and what this represents and who this God is and what he's doing. And Oh my goodness. I hope, I hope this morning... Uh, you too feel shaken in your spirit, out of our sleepiness, out of complacency, out of routine, and into just an overwhelming sense of awe in this God that allows us, in spite of our sin, in spite of our rebellion, to come to him, to worship him, and even more than that, to be his sons and his daughters, to be his family, to be citizens in his kingdom, is it is mind-boggling, mind-boggling. This morning we are going to be in Philippians. We're taking a little break from Acts. We've done this a couple times so far. When we reach a moment in the narrative in Acts where one of the epistles is relevant or one of the letters that, uh, that um, one of the apostles writes is relevant, we're going to take a little break and just kind of look at that and just do a 30,000-foot flyover. We don't have time. I mean, normally we take weeks, you know, a couple months and a series to walk through one of these letters. And so we're not going to, we're not going to mine the depths. We're just going to kind of fly over uh, and, and get a snapshot of it. Um, but over the last, um, uh, last couple weeks, uh, especially last week, we've been talking about uh, Paul being in this city of Philippi, where he meets a wealthy businesswoman and a prison guard whose name we don't even know, who become some of the first members of the new church that is planted in this city of Philippi. Paul is writing this letter from prison, likely in Rome, to this church. And uh, I, um, I agree with one particular theologian who, who says that you can sum up this letter in three words. Christ is all. That is the theme of this letter. And when we start looking at like outlines and, and whatnot and trying to break it down, it, gets, it can be helpful just in, so we can kind of organize the thoughts in our mind. But we want to remind ourselves, Paul did not break this up into chapters with, you know, this is not an outline that he, that he laid out. This is a letter and, and uh, about a thousand years later then people added the chapters and the verses just so it would be easier for us to organize. But Paul's not writing and chapter 2, verse 1 Therefore, he's just writing a letter like people write letters. 
Um, but if it's helpful to you, we can kind of, again, 30,000 foot fly over. Chapter one, we see an overwhelming theme of Christ is our life. In chapter two, Christ is our example. In chapter three, we see Christ is our object, the object of our worship, our, des- our desire, our goal. He, Christ, is the end. And then chapter four, we see this sense of God. Christ is our provider. So what we're going to do today is read through um, the first eight or so verses uh, in chapter one. It's kind of the, the preamble, if you will, the introduction. And it actually, I would argue, serves as a pretty helpful outline for the rest of the letter. So let me pray for us one more time, and then let's dig into God's Word. Father, please help us. Spirit, move in us so that we would be able to understand the spiritual truths and realities in your Word. And we know we can't do that without your help, but you promised to help us. So we cling to that promise today and ask that you would give us discernment, give us wisdom, give us hope, give us encouragement. Gently correct us where that is needed, but more than anything, stir our affections for our Jesus and for one another, for your glory and for our good. And may you bless the reading of your word this morning. Amen. So in chapter 1, we're actually going to start in verse 3. Well, we're going to read it. Paul and Timothy, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. So Paul is with Timothy. You'll notice in almost all of his letters, it's Paul and. He's always writing with whoever he is with. And this one is not the exception to that rule. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints or holy ones in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, I thank God in all of my remembrance of you. This is a letter of gratitude, saturated with gratitude. Always in every prayer of mine for you, for you all, making my prayer with joy. This is a joyful letter, an exceedingly joyful letter. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This is a letter about being united to one another. Partners in the gospel, united to each other. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Because this is also a letter about unity with Christ and dependence on him. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. This is a very personal and intimate letter written to people that Paul knows and loves dearly. For you are partakers with me of grace. This is a letter that calls us to remember the grace that we have received so that we can give it to others. Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, right? In the good news and in the bad news. This is a letter that calls us to joy and contentment regardless of our circumstances. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Again, this is very personal to Paul. This is very intimate. 
And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Is this how you start your letters? No. Are you still, who still writes letters? I think letters are awesome. Thank you, thank you, each of you, for writing letters. Letters are awesome. People still love getting mail. Uh, and it is ridiculously encouraging. Uh, this was meant to be ridiculously encouraging to the original recipients as well. And so as this kind of serves as the outline, we're going we're gonna to walk through all of this. What we see in here is that this is an intensely personal letter. Right, this is a letter written to people that Paul knows well and he loves. He met them. Many of them he discipled. He, he, he saw them led to Christ. He was a part of planting this church. He's been sending letters and, and, and uh, uh, missionaries to and from and has been in contact with them. He knows and loves these people. And the letter reads more like a talk around the dinner table than a lecture in a classroom says things like, I yearn for you all with the affections of Christ Jesus. Later he says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. He loves these people. He cares about what happens to these people. He calls the Philippians his beloved. He calls Timothy his son. He calls Epaphroditus his brother. And it says that Epaphroditus was sick. He almost died from illness, but that God healed him. And Paul says that, that, that his healing was, yes, a mercy toward Epaphroditus, but also a mercy for himself because if he had died, he would have been completely overwhelmed with sorrow over the loss of his brother. Because he loves these people. And when we read it, if we read the letter to the Philippians in one sitting, which is actually how it was intended to be read, which even if you are a painfully slow reader like me, is like a 15-minute commitment. So I would really encourage you all to, to do that. To all the short, I mean, maybe not 1 Corinthians or Romans. That's a, I mean, I, well, we should do that too, but don't start with that one or you'll never do it again. Start, start with Philippians, start with Ephesians, start with Galatians or Colossians, and just read it straight through. Because it's a letter. It's meant to be read that way. And when we do, we see extraordinary things. We see Paul's heart for these people. We notice important themes like Paul's love for Christ, his love for these people, his love for the church, and, and the fact that he believes that it is love that produces and allows us to approve what is excellent and pure in the Christian life, not the other way around. We see Paul's heart for real people in actual situations rather than reading this like a list of disconnected proverbs that we dissect and memorize and quote completely severed from its context. When we read it all together and we hear the flow of his argument, we hear his heart, we feel how personal this is and how much he loves these people. It is a joyful and a grateful letter. Fourteen times in this letter, he uses the word either joy or rejoice. Fourteen times. 
He commands us to be joyful, in fact. He says, rejoice in the Lord. And then a few paragraphs later, he doubles down. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. He commands it. He speaks of joy in this letter, not just as the result of our unity with Christ and our unity with each other, but the means of achieving it. I'll point out what I mean by that in just a little bit. And that aspect of unity is really important because this letter, foundational in this letter, is a call to unity with Jesus and with each other within the church. In chapter 1, verse 27, It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So central in this letter is Paul teaching them that a life worthy of the gospel is not a life that follows all of the rules but one that demonstrates the love of Christ to one another through gospel unity in Christ so that the world might see, the world that so desperately needs Jesus might actually see him in us in the way that we unite together with Christ and under Christ in spite of all the countless differences that we have in background, family of origin, culture, beliefs, opinions, all of those things. That people would look in and say, how can, those, how can that group of people all come around this one table? There must be something significant going on there. And in chapter 2, Paul tells us the end is that so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the goal. And that is not accomplished through division. We see later in this letter that this is not a random encouragement but is prompted by a current division between two leaders within the church. In ver- oh, <laughs> in my uh, enthusiastic waving about of my hands, I changed books. So I'm like, verse 1 says, that's, that's not what verse 1 is supposed to say. Oh, that's because I'm in Ephesians. I need to... Need to cool it with the flailing. Oh, that's the verse one I was looking for. Okay, chapter four of Philippians, verse one, says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Iodia. And I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help 
These women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Do you notice Paul sandwiches his concern for these two influential women within the church with the solution? How do we deal with this division that evidently is between these two women? By standing firm together with Jesus and by rejoicing in Jesus. Unity and joy are both the means and the result. I love it. I love it. Paul's so awesome. The Holy Spirit in Paul is super awesome. And what happens, what we see in this letter, what happens is that this produces radically generous people. Unity in Christ, unity with Christ, and unity with one another in Christ produces a people who are radically generous by every definition of the word. In chapter 4, verses 10 through 19, it describes how they gave generously to provide for Paul's ministry. It says, I rejoiced greatly and now at length that you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation to be content. He says, he goes on and says, Yet I w- you were kind to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that at the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs. Once again, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. He refers to it as a fragrant offering. Financial giving is not only the mark of a healthy church, but of a joyful church. And Paul says, I want you to have even more of that joy. I want, you, I want to see the fruit that's credited to you and your account by your generosity. Giving support to the work of the church and its missionaries is a joyful privilege. A joyful privilege. Stacy and I committed early on in our marriage um, that 10% would be our minimum. That's the bottom. And depending on how God blesses, we, we go up from there if he allows. And by God's grace, we have, we have stuck with that commitment throughout our marriage, throughout several changes of life and career and job and location and, and, and all these things. A lot of other commitments have been left in the dust along the way. There have been seasons of life where my desk is clean. I used to have pecs. That fell by the wayside somewhere along the way. I'm so grateful that God has given us perseverance in this one. And the reason I share that with you is for two reasons. Number one, 
Because I believe very firmly that it is hypocritical nonsense for me to stand up here and encourage you to do something that I am not willing to do myself. And I think it's important for you to know that. The other reason I share that with you is because I can tell you by experience that it is truly joyful. We love it. We have loved it. It is, not, it is not a painful obligation that we have to do. It is a joy. And we look forward to seeing month after month how God will relentlessly and lovingly continue to provide in the ways that he does. And then we get to see the awesome and incredible work that he does through the church because of how he provides. It is a gift and it is a joy. And so Paul even says, like, I don't even need the money. Like, I'm doing fine. I want you to experience the joy that comes from this kind of obedience, this form of worship. More and more and more. And then rewind to chapter 2, Paul speaks of a different kind of generosity. A generosity of spirit and of attitude. Humility toward one another, that we would consider others more important than ourselves. With Jesus as our example, the Creator God of the universe condescended to His own creation, setting aside all of his rights and his privileges coming as a servant in order to be unjustly murdered by the very people that he came to save. That is our example. That is the standard of self-sacrifice that has been set, which is why it is so confusing and honestly offensive when Christians are complaining about their rights. It's confusing, first of all, because Paul commands us that we should do everything without grumbling and complaining. So right out of the gate, I'm on the wrong footing. That's in chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, just in case you thought I made that up. Same letter. Do everything without grumbling and complaining, we're commanded. But the other thing, and throughout the rest of chapter 2, and, and the more important issue is that we are followers of the only one in the universe who is literally entitled to everything. Everything. He has the right and say and privilege and authority over everything. And Paul tells us in Philippians 2, he set that aside. Why? To save you. To save me. For my sake, for your sake, and for the sake of the people in the world out there who do not yet know how dearly and deeply loved they are. With Jesus as our example and our mind set on what he did for us, then our joy-filled perspective shifts to what could possibly be too much to give? What could possibly be too valuable for me to share? Who 
could possibly be unworthy of my humble generosity. And for me to both demonstrate and declare the goodness of the gospel to them. Nothing, nothing, nobody, just in case you're spoiler. I'll give you the cheat sheet on that one. Church, this is a letter for our time. It was so perfect and relevant to the church that it was written to, and it is so perfect and relevant to our church right now and to the church around the world. We are living in a season where anxiety and resentment and fear and bitterness and anger are epidemic. That is the corrosive pandemic that we should be most concerned about. And Paul, in this letter, calls us to practice thankfulness and joy. To practice these things. Neither of these things are things that just happen to us. They are things we must choose. He uses phrases throughout the letter like, practice these things, work out your salvation, holding fast, straining toward, pressing on toward the goal, holding true to what we have attained. And he encourages his readers to imitate the pattern of his life. There is an an intense intentionality that is involved in this. But then Paul gives us the life hack, the secret to how we can actually accomplish this. I skipped over it when we were reading chapter 4, so we'll come back to it now in verse 11 of chapter 4 of Philippians. Please. It says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So when we look at this as like, a series of tweets that we just kind of pull out a verse here and there, that's how you end up with I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me being like printed on the side of your like workout water bottle. You can push through that set. You can squeeze out those last two reps because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You can accomplish anything you set your mind to. No, you can't, first of all. That's nonsense. And that's not what Scripture is saying here. It's actually way more encouraging than that. We've diminished it by pulling it out of its context. What Paul is saying is, regardless of what is going on, I can be joyfully content. Should God provide all that I need in abundance, I will praise his name. Because he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. If he takes everything I have away from me, I will praise his name Because he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Should he choose to heal, I will praise his name. For he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. And if he chooses not to heal, I will praise his name. For he is good 
and his steadfast love endures forever in all circumstances, church, in all circumstances, regardless. We can find joy, joy, saturated contentment in and through Christ and Christ alone. That is what Paul is saying, and that is what he says is the secret. The secret. He says earlier in chapter, uh, chapter 3, everything else is worthless compared to knowing Christ and being known by Him. It is nonsense. It will all, it's dust and ash. It will all be gone. It will all be forgotten. But Christ endures forever. Written by a guy in prison. Right? He's not like writing from his study the peak of his ministry. He's writing from inside a prison saying, what's this? You guys remember last time I was in prison? Remember that prison guard? You thankful for my joyfulness in that moment? It's real to Paul. Paul's not writing platitudes. That's why he can say, imitate the pattern of my life. And he's writing this to people who go, oh, I remember what you're like in prison. I remember what you're like when you're in need and I remember what you're like when things abound. In a season of division and factions, we desperately need Paul's call to unity with one another under Christ. In the years Leading up to the pandemic, sociologists and a few very wise pastors were pointing out the growing division and polarization of Western culture. And it was getting harder and harder to have any level of helpful dialogue, right? Because those who disagreed with you were increasingly those people, the villains, the enemy, And people overall were losing their trust in authority and in institutions, both inside and outside of the church. And what they were saying, looking back at history and the seasons when they've seen cultures do this before, what they were saying is what we really need, not that we want this to happen, but probably the only thing that's going to fix this is something traumatic, like a war or a natural disaster or like a global pandemic or something. Because in those contexts, oftentimes what happens is people set aside the nonsense and the division and unite. Anybody remember September 11th, 2001? For a fleeting moment, there were no parties, there were no factions, we were all just Americans for like a minute. But they looked at that and they said, well, we've done it before, so maybe that can happen again and then we can do a better job of building on that once that happens. But is that what happened? No. It turns out that it didn't work this time. That rather than uniting us, The global pandemic drove the wedges even deeper and the division became even more polarized and those with different opinions from us are labeled and dehumanized. 
Once you label someone, you label it so that you no longer have to engage them in a real way as an actual person knit together by God as his image bearer with their own story, life, hopes, fears, dreams, and loves. They're just one of those. They're a fill-in-the-blank. It dehumanizes them. It happened on both sides. Propaganda from both sides and algorithms that ensure that when you search for something, you only find things that you agree with have made it really difficult to filter through misinformation. And so, disordered desires and lies become affirmed in our hearts and in our lives, and the divisions grow deeper and deeper and deeper. Trust in institutions and authorities are at record lows. It has disintegrated across the board, inside and outside of the church. Professing Christians over the last two years have left the church in record numbers because they have decided largely that they are their own authority. They do not need the God-ordained, scripturally affirmed covenant family of God led by qualified men and women who actually display Christ-likeness and who know you and love you and care about you and what happens to you. We don't need that. Who needs discipleship and accountability when I have the internet where I can find whatever I want and what I need? And if those inside the church are struggling to trust and submit to healthy authority and to one another, then surely we can't expect the secular world around us to do better. We are all, as a result, left floundering and stressed and confused and isolated and fearful and angry And into this mess, Paul quietly encourages, I have a secret. I know a better way. I know the way that surpasses anything we could possibly accomplish on our own. I know the way that actually leads to less anxiety and fear and anger and to real community and real love and to your true identity. I know the secret. Humble surrender to Christ Jesus, which leads to and produces gracious and joyful unity with one another. A spirit of giving not concerned about what we get, but what we get to give. A spirit of gratitude, fixing our eyes on what is good and what is right. A spirit of grace, knowing that since Christ is my only hope, it gives me patience with you and love for the lost who I want to find that same hope. The path to get there, Paul tells us, as simple as it sounds, is by setting our minds and our hearts 
on Christ rather than our circumstances. On what is right and what is good and what is true rather than on all that is wrong, which just corrodes our soul, our hearts, and clouds our minds. What he tells us in chapter 4, verse 8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. That is good news, church. I hope your heart hears that and receives that as good news. I hope that as you dwell on that this week, that would stir joy in you, that that is true. That as you fixate on that, it would stir worship in you and it would stir not just your affections for Christ, but for those around you, both those that you already love and those who right now appear to be your enemies. Sarah and Rachel come back up and we sing one more song together. I just want to pray that verse over you one more time. Church, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus.